I don't remember where I was when I found out that gay marriage was legal in Colorado and it was only last year. I don't remember the date or even the month. Was it August? Civil unions came first, and then there was this sort of inevitable feeling about it, the same feeling when recreational pot was finally legalized. It was all kind of, so what? Not with a bang, not at all. I asked my mom if she thought her and her partner might finally get hitched. Nah, she said in what's left of her nasal Michigan accent. They'd already been hitched for more than 20 years. Mom never wanted to get married anyway. Cue sound of balloon deflating. My mom came out to me when I was 12 years old. I've told this story to myself and others enough times that it feels like Groundhog Day all over again. It was 1984. Ronald Reagan was president. We'd been in San Francisco visiting her friend Irene after my mom finished a women's writing workshop with the poet Audre Lorde in Santa Cruz. My mom was wearing a mauve leotard and a pair of those baggy brown canvas parachute pants that cinch at the ankles. I was wearing a pair of blue and white lace-up checkerboard vans and listening to the dead milkman on my Walkman. Irene lived on the third floor of a skinny brown building in Bernal Heights. It had a balcony where you could see the entire neighborhood, the top of Bernal Hill and the red and white striped prongs of the Sutro Tower forking through the fog. She had a couple of gay roommates named Aaron and Aaron. One was spelled with two A's and the other with an E. They were both psychologists. Aaron was tall, bald, and had a mustache. Aaron was short, clean-shaven, and had a full head of hair. I saw them kissing on the balcony one night after dinner. Irene and the Aaron with the A's were trying to get pregnant, my mom told me in very clinical terms. She was a nurse practitioner and worked at the venereal disease clinic at the county health department. Everything during that trip seemed charged with sex in some way or another. Another night out on the balcony, I saw a Japanese couple across the street eating dinner completely nude at a long glass table. Another day, there was a young woman swimming topless in the surf off Angel Island. Then I noticed that the big hairy guy next door who liked to walk around with his shirt off had pierced nipples. It was spring break of sixth grade, and I wasn't a little kid anymore. I had just slouched down and gotten comfortable in the black pleather airport chair when my mom tapped me on the shoulder. I pulled the headphones away from my ears. Can I talk to you for a minute, my mom said. Annoyed, I pressed pause. I was just wondering what you thought of Aaron and Irene trying to have a baby, she said. I don't know, I said, shrugging. I guess it's kind of weird since they're gay and all. Do you know anyone else who's gay? She asked me. I thought about it. Hmm, I guess maybe Brooke's mom and Misty's mom, I said, thinking about some of the kids in the playgroup I'd grown up with. Mm-hmm, Mom said. Who else? I thought about a few other kids whose moms lived with women, which I'd never really thought about before. It didn't seem like that big of a deal, but yeah. I guess that's it, I said. She stared at me for too long, then pursed her lips. I am, she said. But that wasn't all. And your dad is, she said. I felt dizzy when she said this, but mostly because I knew the minute she told me that it was true. It had just recently started to seem weird to me that my dad and his so-called roommate slept in the same bed, but I hadn't connected that dot, hadn't wanted to. I don't remember much of what happened after that except not wanting to share the armrest with my mom on the plane ride home. 
Yeah, sure. Misty and Brooke and Tom and Carl and Jenny's moms were lesbians. But my mom was a lesbian and my dad was gay. What my mom had told me meant something terrible that I couldn't even begin to think about in words. I just knew. If they were gay, then I was probably gay too. And being gay meant you were a fag. And being a fag was the worst thing anyone could be. Everyone knew that. Or was I? And how would I know? There was no language for what I was or what my friends might have been. And there was no way we would have even talked about it. I'm Jake Brownell, and this is Wish We Were Here. On this episode, my co-producer Noel Black revisits a small enclave of friends and acquaintances with gay parents that he grew up with in Colorado Springs. The thing that struck me after marriage was legalized in Colorado last year was the fact that I'd never really talked to any of my peers about their experiences growing up. Even now that I'm 42, I have to admit that something about it makes me nervous, like breaking an unspoken code of silence. And I want to say here at the beginning that there were many others in this community who I couldn't reach or who still felt uncomfortable talking on tape. First rule of Fight Club, don't talk about it. There is no Fight Club. You know? First rule for <laughs> we didn't us, even have to make that rule. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We didn't have to make that rule. There was, that was never said because it was so blatantly clear. This is my friend Brooke Carlson. He and his older brother Tom were part of the small secret gang of us in the old north end of Colorado Springs who had lesbian moms. We had all those like barbecues and, and, and things on the weekend where we the kids were thrown into this group. And it was like in that moment that we had some real affinity and some safety there as this space of shared whatever, you know, shared experience. You know, the the secret group. That's where I felt safest, even though I, I we didn't talk to each other. Misty Eichengreen was another one in the gang. She lived just across the street from me on Nevada Avenue with her mom, Linda. Our secret group came about in the mid-1970s. Many of our moms had come into their own political and sexual awareness through the second wave of the feminist movement as it was led by women like Betty Friedan and here, Gloria Steinem. Miss Steinem, may I ask you a question? Uh, you made a speech before the National Press Club this year, and you said, and I quote, women are not taken seriously. We are undervalued, ridiculed, or ignored by a society which consciously and unconsciously assumes that the white male is the standard and the norm. Now, what's your explanation for this serious state of affairs in view of the fact that men, males, are at least virtually controlled and dominated by women from birth to puberty and often beyond that. Why haven't you done a better job if you're as smart as you say you are? Well, it's your statement, not mine, that men are virtually controlled by women from, from birth onward. I mean, if you take a very uh, an intelligent person with the normal hopes and ambitions and confine her to the home, she becomes sometimes over-dominating within those four walls, as a man would be as well. But the truth of her situation is that she has no real power over her life outside the home, nor does she have power over the economics or the politics of her life. Most of our so, moms had gotten married and divorced, came out of the closet, and found one another through the feminist movement. Here's my mom. The, the lesbian moms, I think we did tend to hang together. That's one of the things that sort of defined us. There was a feeling that was sort of like, well, we're raising these children and this is an experiment. Yeah, we were sort of all kind of barely post-hippies 
uh, and it, there was a sense among us that anything was possible, and that's the, the energy that that carried us. Together, they began to build the kind of feminist community they wanted to live in. We worked hard, and we we had meetings. We worked together. Uh, and one of the things that was wonderful in terms of children was that we shared our we shared childcare. We took care of one another's children. On top of all that, they started a cooperative women's health clinic in Colorado Springs. Here's my friend Misty's mom, Linda Sutton. The women's health service clinic began with the group of women who saw in our community that there was no access to legal abortions in Colorado Springs. Nobody would do them, um, but abortions were legal. And so some volunteers started taking women out of Colorado Springs, traveling with them to other cities in Colorado to get abortions. And when that became tedious and there were so many women who needed that, then a group of women got together to open the first um, abortion clinic in Colorado Springs, and they provided other other women's health services. And that broke the barrier, in fact, as I recall, because once that was open, then doctors, other doctors started providing. Tom Carlson, Brooke's older brother, remembers the clinic, which at the time was right across the street from our school. I would get out of school at Steele and walk across to the clinic and to wait for my mom to get off work or whatever. And sometimes the people with the babies stuck on the crosses and the rosary and all of these placards, you know, protesting, whatever, um, they, I would have to cross, go through, you know, walk through that to go into the clinic and wait on my, wait for my mom to get mm -hmm. off work. But I was just a kid, you know, and <laughs> I just would go over there and wait for my mom. I didn't know what else to do or, or what it all meant. For us as kids, the politics, activism, and feminist culture was all just part of the fabric of our childhoods. Do you remember living in the commune? I fondly remember that. Tell me about that. That was crazy. The commune was great. Tell, where was it? It was on Tejon, right next to a place called Babe's Meat Market. A lot of irony there. The lesbian commune was next to Babe's Meat Market, which was a little... Uh, like a, a little neighborhood store and meat market deli kind of thing. But um, it was in a great neighborhood. You know, the old North End is a special place. And it was a beautiful, big Victorian house. Women-only communes, women's land, and lesbian separatist spaces were a big part of the feminist movement in the 1970s. And the lesbian commune on Tejon Street was part of that larger movement, but it wasn't a separatist space. What was the day like there on a weekend or, you know? Well, there was a lot of activity, a lot of people. People had jobs. So, yeah, on the weekend, you know, more people were there. And they were cooking. They were socializing, listening to music. I remember a lot of music. Um, we had chores, you know. And, and uh, I remember Julia paid my allowance. And Julia had, was, was one of the women living there. And she had a better job, I think, than my mom or something. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's just part of the deal that, you know, my chores, Julia would pay my allowance for doing my chores, you know, which was awesome. You mm -hmm. know, what, who, you know, 
it was a good deal. It worked out well. I remember camping and, and lots of bare-breasted, you know, naked women singing the Rolling Stones and and doing all kinds of stuff and and the the commune experience, you know, naked yoga and and lots of stuff and that that was that was a part of a space that was really rich and really really wild and when we were I felt really safe there. We all felt safe and relatively normal within our enclave of gay parents if that was ever even a thought. At the time, I'm a kid. And my living arrangements don't, to me, appear that unusual. Right, because it's, it's you know, what's happening. Right, and I got <laughs> stuff to do, you know. I mean, I've got friends to see and, you know, school and things happening. So, you know, my living situation to me was somewhat what it was. It was normal to me, and I didn't really think that much about it. But there was also an awareness as we got older that our little community was different. Most other kids' parents, even if they were divorced, were straight. Sometimes people, it would come up. Um, and it may have come up more than I know. It may have come up in cases where potential friends or friends that I was developing or friends that I had, you know, maybe they couldn't spend the night, you know, but I didn't know that, you know, it was like, can you, can you stay over? And if the answer was no, it's because something else was happening. Not because on the other end, maybe that young friend of mine's parents was have, were having a discussion about, you know, probably not best to stay at the lesbian commune. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. As we got older and our social circles expanded, we all intuitively developed strategies for dodging questions about our parents' unusual living arrangements. My explanation to all of my friends was always um, our friend or roommate. It was Annette or Teresa were the, were the biggest ones, really, that lived with my mom. And it was always roommate or, or friend. Yeah. And that was just how I explained it. You know, that was how I just, I would just say that and I would hope that there weren't any questions. <laughs> and I think my own kind of uncomfortability probably forecast itself to my friends. And they probably read that and didn't ask any questions. The implications were real. Here's Misty again. I remember when my mom came out to me, but I don't remember how old I was, but I was younger. So my impression was, oh, my mom's different and that's cool, until I told somebody at school. It was a girlfriend, you know, just another peer, who then told everybody else. And it was in third grade, and I was at Steele Elementary, and I stopped having friends. Entirely? Pretty much. Yeah, it was a lonely year that year. I was embarrassed, and I was very shy to tell people that my mom was a lesbian for years. We all had to figure out our own strategies for broaching the issue with the outside world. Some of us avoided it, but others chose to confront it head on. I'm Pam Jones, um, also known as Her Majesty, <laughs> by practically everyone who knows me. All right, I'm Chantel Zach Jones. I'm daughter. Juliet Draper. <clears throat> I'm the spouse. Stepmama. Yeah, stepmom extraordinaire, Colorado Springs firefighter. Ooh. Chantel is a decade younger than I am. While we didn't grow up together, she, Pam, and Juliet, like the rest of us, had to figure out how to tell outsiders. One of the things I remember <clears throat> you growing up and making friends, because one of the things that we chose to do um, just to not have any problems was if Chantel made a friend and wanted to bring the friend over, 
we would inform the parents mm -hmm. because we did not want to be uncomfortable in our own home. Mm -hmm. I remember my best friend was also, um, her parents babysat me every day. Mm -hmm. And I remember when my mom, was it Teresa? I don't remember. When really? my mom first realized that mm -hmm. she was attracted to women mm -hmm. and she had to tell the person, the people that were babysitting me, I remember being scared that I was going to lose my best friend. Sometimes things worked out okay. I can't remember what that was. Audrey. 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 Audrey was yep. one of Chantel's little friends. And, you know, we were having, you know, Audrey was hanging out. And we're like, well, we need to meet the, we, we need to meet the parents. And, you know, we need to have the conversation. And so we go over to the house. Pam and I go over there together. And then the two women are there. And we're just like... <laughs> Okay, then. Well, good I talk. I think everything's right. okay. <laughs> because yeah. they were also trying to figure it out. What to do, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because th they didn't know either. Right. And Audrey kept asking questions yeah, about, about our me, friendship. Who we were. And, yeah, we're, well, where do you sleep? And, you know, and we're just like, what? Okay, we need to talk to the parents. Yeah. And yeah. so, but the questions she was asking were the questions that the child of gay people would ask. Right. right. The kids wouldn't even, it wouldn't was think not even about in their conscience. Right. Among our group, Tom and Brooke's mom was more publicly out than other moms, which meant that avoiding the issue wasn't an option. My mom kind of advertised it. She was not shy at all. So in wherever we lived, I do remember she, she learned to do stained glass. And she would make these two women's symbols together and put them in, hang them in the windows of the houses that we lived in. And, you know, it was like a sign. <laughs> you know, it was, it was pretty blatant. Tom developed a reputation as a bit of a bruiser. It, it was an issue in junior high because some of the kids had things, you know, had, had, it was a tool to make fun of my brother and I. But I don't think that that, looking back, was so detrimental. You had to learn to stand up for yourself and, you know, your family or whatever. And you had to kind of take the good with the bad. If some kids, if you got into a fight with some bad kids or kids that were being mean to you or your brother, it, it was character building. You know, it's kind of stand up for what's going on in your life and, you know, be proud of it. But the threats we intuited weren't just social or physical. Here's my mom. We were very much aware of the legal dangers, and there were women whose partners, whose husbands um, or partners uh, wanted child custody and perhaps hadn't been awarded child custody, who used their lesbianism as a reason to present to the courts as why they weren't fit mothers. So we were all very much aware of that and aware that we could lose our children um, if we were reported to social services and if w it was established that we were living a lesbian lifestyle. So there was a covert um, element to al almost everything we did. This is Wish We Were Here from Radio Colorado College. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Wish We Were Here from Radio Colorado College. I'm Jake Brownell. If you're just joining us, in this episode, producer Noel Black is revisiting the small enclave of friends and acquaintances with gay parents that he grew up with in Colorado Springs. So much of what my mom and other gay parents were dealing with in the 70s and 80s was wanting to live freely, to be themselves without shame. But they also understood that their feminism and sexuality could endanger their kids. There was the specter of teasing and physical violence, but there was also a more profound concern that our families had no legal protection. Jessica, who asked us not to use her last name, was born in Arkansas. Before she came to Colorado Springs in the mid-1980s, her biological parents got divorced. They had a bitter legal battle for custody, and her mom's sexuality was front and center. The argument was, which is more harmful, having a lesbian mother or having a junkie for a father, which at that time my father certainly was. Uh, This was in Arkansas, so uh, different political climate. Uh, And and they, you know, they chose in favor of my mother, I think, more more because of her gender rather than the actual argument, um, because that was definitely an issue. Um, there were they they had subpoenaed me as a child to testify um, about my mother's relationship with her partner at that time and and gratefully I didn't have to testify but that was that was absolutely on the board. It sounds archaic now to think of the courts equating lesbians with junkies, but the fact was at the time no one knew what effect being raised in a gay family might have on kids. Social scientists were only just beginning to study the subject, and conversations about homosexuality were tainted by the charged rhetoric of the culture wars. By the time my mom came out to me when I was 12, the voices of anti-gay activists like Anita Bryant and Jerry Falwell's moral majority had begun to spill out into the culture at large. You see, if homosexuals are allowed their civil rights, then so would prostitutes or thieves or anyone else. There was a feeling of being threatened. They're unmistakable which I also think sort of contributed to some of the cohesiveness of of our community, um, our inner circle of friends, because I think all of us felt that threat. That was my mom. And here's Linda Sutton again. Even though I lived in an accepting environment, in an accepting immediate environment, the environment outside of us was not a very accepting environment. And while I taught my daughter to be honest... Uh, and to live freely, I had to caution her that there were people in the world who would not accept this and that she had to be very um, judicious in who she talked to about this. So I was worried on her behalf that she would get discriminated against because of um, my lifestyle. I was worried that she could even be hurt. It was around this time that I also remember worrying most about my own sexuality. No matter how much our parents loved and encouraged us, the culture made it clear that being a dyke or a fag was a less than desirable fate. Here's Misty Eichengreen. I mean, I think I had to say, oh gosh, is that going to happen to me? And that sort of, where, which way am I headed? But that was short-lived. It was very clear to me. And I think I, you know, I, my mom is a therapist, and so guess where I was most of my childhood in therapy. And <laughs> so was I. <laughs> yeah. So I think I got to talk some of that through and think that through pretty, pretty effectively and mm-hmm. quickly, you know. It felt dangerous, especially as a young man. 
What made it worse was that it was invisible. There was no way to know if homosexuality was genetic or conditioned. You couldn't see it on someone's face. I had to wonder myself, well, my mom is gay, so does that mean that I too am gay? Mm-hmm. Am I gay by birth? Is that a kind of genetic issue? Yeah. What does that mean for, for, for me? And I think you and I had some, maybe some of those discussions. Yeah. And I think for me with my, like, because my dad was gay too, I was like, well, I'm, uh, I'm definitely gay. Like, there's no, there's no escape <laughs> from the gene pool. Yeah, it's on both sides, yeah. right? But it must be. Though Brooke's older brother Tom had confronted playground homophobia with his fists, Brooke and I both sought to avoid it. We found refuge in sports where we could pass for straight whether we might be gay or not. Best to fake it and keep your fingers crossed. You and I also both played hockey growing up. Um, was sure. was sports uh, kind of like a masculine safe haven for you in the way that it was for me? I mean, I remember just <laughs> feeling like, thank God I like play hockey. It's like I can kind of... Not only because it felt like a kind of a place to hide in plain sight, but it was also access to like straight male heterosexual culture. Yeah, I mean, boy, that's what athletics are all about, aren't they? <laughs> but yeah, I, I felt that was a safe space because then I could be—I mean, I could be violent, I could be masculine, I could be um, straight, absolutely. And and that was accepted. Taking out the anxieties of my own life on the ice became a fabulous release, mm-hmm. a fabulous way to release my anxiety and frustration with the fact that, you know, some people could have sex with whomever they wanted and some people had to hide that. The fact that I had to go back and forth between two different families and I felt less than or greater than. The fact that, you know, I didn't have a billion dollars and, and it seemed like everyone around me did. And just the stuff that is growing up. Our secret group had mostly disbanded by the late 80s as we moved into high school or went on to college. For me, the shared experiences of our childhood gave way to a mostly private struggle. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. Robert Bazell now in Atlanta. Bobby Campbell of San Francisco and Billy Walker of New York both suffer from a mysterious newly discovered disease which affects mostly homosexual men. I was 16 when my mom told me that my dad had HIV. He'd kept me at arm's length since he left my mom the year after I was born and moved to Tucson where he lived with his partner David. I spent much of my late teens and college years trying to know him as I wrestled with the puzzle of my own sexuality before he died in 1993. It became much harder for him I think once he he started being involved with David, because then he was in a relationship with a man, which is what he wanted, but then he couldn't resolve the part of how can I do this, be in a relationship with a man, and be a father. That Now then he had that conflict to deal with. It was, for him, it was, uh, to me, it was obvious that he could not resolve the two things. In many ways, his inability to reconcile family life with homosexuality mirrored the increasingly hostile debate taking place in America at that time. Gay plague, as AIDS has been called, is the center of a political storm. The moral majority claiming AIDS is God's punishment for the gay lifestyle. All this media attention and sympathy for these AIDS victims just really bothers me. Let's call a spade a spade. 
AIDS is a venereal disease and the vast majority of its victims are a group of abnormal people with a very strange and unusual lifestyle. As the 1990s began, the family values movement started to take root in Colorado Springs. The National Conservative Christian Organization Focus on the Family moved to town in 1991, and people like my mom, who'd been here for decades, began to sense a shift. The atmosphere in Colorado Springs, I don't remember changing really significantly until after Focus on the Family came to town. And that was during the years, I think, that I was working at the health department, because I remember there was a restaurant where we would sometimes go for lunch. And one of the things I started to see there and other places was groups of people praying together. And I remember, you know, turning in, not that I think that's necessarily a bad thing, but it was just something I had never seen here before. And it started to be very commonplace. Around the same time, a group called Colorado for Family Values began campaigning statewide for Amendment 2. It was an initiative designed to prevent gays and lesbians from gaining what proponents called special rights. In effect, it sought to bar cities and counties in Colorado from passing laws declaring gays and lesbians a minority class protected from discrimination. The issue polarized the state, and many gays and lesbians began to fear for their safety to a degree that they hadn't before. Here's Linda Sutton again. There was a therapist in town whose office was somehow ransacked during that time, not too far from where my office is, and I was speaking out. I didn't stop speaking out. I went, there was um, a public forum down at Centennial Hall in the early days of Amendment 2, and they were looking for speakers pro and con, and I volunteered to speak. And what I didn't know was that buses of... um, people who were opposed to um, my lifestyle and were pro-Amendment 2 were being bussed into Centennial Hall, so there, and they had come early. So there wasn't room for the other side to be seated. And there were many, many people, hundreds of people standing outside. And I walked through the most hostile crowd. Um, You know, I was in Chicago in 68 and faced um, police and bayonets. And this was akin to that kind of fear and hostility. And I, I truly thought I could be, I could be shot when I get up to speak. I wasn't. Um, But It was scary. It was a really, really scary time. For the next generation of lesbian parents raising kids at the time, the political climate in Colorado Springs was more outwardly hostile than it had been in the 70s and 80s. It was enough to force Pam Jones to reconsider how out she was willing to be as a mother. I had a store in old Colorado City. I I put a sign up that said, um, yes on on Amendment 2? No. No on Amendment 2. I got my window shot out, but I was asked a couple different times to be public about Amendment 2 and um, by the community, and I chose not to be. And one of the reasons, and I did tell that to someone who said, well, oh, you sure have a luxury. You get to be quiet about this. And I said, basically, my daughter did not choose this. 
And until she graduates from high school, I need for her to be protected. I need for her to make the decisions about who she wants to tell and who she doesn't want to tell. But I definitely felt like I needed to protect her because there was so much hostility, mm-hmm. along with the fact that she's also black in this town that is... Four percent, which is worse. Yeah, four percent black. Her father is white, so she is biracial. So there's a lot of areas that I was concerned about her in. I mean, in relationship to black people and how they feel about biracial, mm-hmm. in relationship how they to, mm-hmm. how, yeah, oh. <laughs> it was it was challenging. Here's Chantel, Pam's daughter. I was too young during Amendment 2 to really understand. I remember having my mom's friends staying the night when Juliet was working because there were skinheads around the corner threatening my mom and the cops didn't have to help and weren't showing up. So I have a memory, but I, I was too young to really be angry and to really know what all that meant. With the national spotlight suddenly pointed at our hometown, Amendment 2 passed by a narrow margin in 1992. Though it would later be struck down by the Supreme Court in 1996, Colorado Springs became known around the world as ground zero for the religious right. For me and many of the kids I grew up with, it was a moment of political awakening. We realized our experiences were tied into the much larger gay rights movement, that the personal was, for us as it was for our parents, political. Here's Misty Eichengreen. I was pissed. I, but I was also like, huh, interesting that they would pick this place, they don't really know. You know, there's this whole community that opposes this fiercely. You know, so it was kind of an interesting... I was not that far away. I was in college, but I was at CSU. So I was in Fort Collins. And um, so I wasn't, you know, didn't have that much distance from it. Um, And I paid close attention. That's when I had bumper stickers on my car. That was kind of when I really turned on my activism and wrote papers about it, really learned, you know, what was going on and and would come down here and protest where there was still some protesting going on a little eensy-beensy, but there was, you know, and so I participated in that. Um, And and so that was very um, empowering, but it was scary. I mean, at the end of the day, you don't march in the streets unless you're scared. Tom Carlson. We used to go to all of these parades, and being out was, and publicly out was so important to my mom. So we would march down the street with, you know, a hundred other gay people and their families and their children, you know, and their dogs or whatever. And we would go, and it would be small and not well organized and kind of weird. But we did it, for, you know, we did it for years, you know, and there would be some people that would dress up in the Grim Reaper sign, you know, with, you know, and say horrible things and stuff, but I didn't care. This is Wish We Were Here. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Wish We Were Here. I'm Jake Brownell. If you're just joining us, producer Noel Black is looking back at the experiences of kids who, like he did, grew up with gay families in Colorado Springs. I left Colorado Springs for all of the 90s, and when I moved back in 2001, I had a family of my own. My wife and I met in San Francisco and came back here not long after our first son was born. In many ways, the city was even more conservative than it had been when I left. George W. Bush was president, Focus on the Family had their own highway sign, and Ted Haggard's New Life Church was on the rise as a force in American politics. But the gay community I'd grown up in was still here and still strong. My mom and her partner had been together since I left for college, and a new generation of gay and lesbian parents were raising their kids openly. Connie Brockenbach and Vicki Greger were just starting their family in the small town of Manitou, just to the west of Colorado Springs, when Amendment 2 passed in the early 90s. They were among the broader trend of gay parents at the time, making the conscious choice to have children as out couples. We lived on a street that was very gay-heavy, so really that was what Emma knew especially and what Nora can remember growing up. But we had a, a, a couple that was just ahead of us, and they had, um, you know, they had sort of blazed that trail for us. And by the time we started our family, their son that they had together uh, was already in his young teenage years. So that was, that was a mentorship that was very meaningful. And, and so we felt pretty protected. Manitou Springs was, was the place to be if you were going to do that. Gay heavy. A gay heavy street. Very much so. It's we like called it. Gangs of gay parents. <laughs> Lesbian Lane is what it was known as. <laughs> That's great. Gangs of gay parents. Unlike my mom and her peers, many of whom had stumbled their way into lesbian parenthood, Connie and Vicky were well aware of the social, political, and legal challenges they would now face as lesbian moms. We had to do things that other straight couples would never have to do. I mean, you know, a, 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 a woman, a straight woman with children, let's say the biological father is deceased, remarries, there's not going to be any argument about who... Um, should have claim to those children or who should have claim to those assets. Legal guardianship and, eventually, adoption of both their girls would take years and a lot of money. Sometimes your, your thoughts could go to uh, drift to, wow, I have to go through all of this. And I can think of, uh, you know, a few people that are parenting with with less commitment or, you know, I'm seeing situations where you can go ahead and just, uh, you know, have as many and claim as many kids as you want and not have to do a whole lot around that. And we're having to work so hard just to prove that we're okay, you know, that we're thinking, you know, of the future. So once in a while, there's a little anger around that. But mostly, it was the idea that it had a price tag. I have to tell you, we were lucky and we were able to afford um, most of it in a timely manner. But if you don't have that, uh it, it's hard, and you find yourself in a very vulnerable position legally, or back in the day you did, certainly. And their eldest daughter, Emma, had to jump through many of these hoops with them. Now 20 years old, she remembers the day just three years ago when Vicky, her non-biological mother, legally adopted her and her younger sister. It was a happy day, but she was also left wondering why, at 17, her family was forced to go through that process. It was, I was a little angry, but it wasn't angry at my parents or the judge. I was angry that it was that this is what our family has to prove. Why do we have to prove ourselves that this is our family and we shouldn't, it shouldn't have to be explicitly said that this is what we want. It should just be like this is what it should be. 
What struck me as I listened to Emma talk about her family some 30 years after my mom first came out to me was how clearly she articulated what family meant to her. Despite the tide of rancor and anti-gay rhetoric in which she'd grown up, Emma was able to casually say what had been unthinkable to me when I was her age. I was very proud to say, oh yeah, my mom's. Um, I kind of shied away from using parents because I didn't want to act like it was something to keep behind closed doors. Like, that's my family. I'm proud. We go to, we do everything together. We're just as normal as any family can be normal. Um, And so, so yeah. I mean, I even, I keep that now that when I refer, when I introduce myself to people at school or when I, um, when people ask, oh, are you Connie and Vicky's daughter? I proudly say, yeah, those are my mom's. Over the last few decades, research has borne out Emma's claim. Study after study has shown that there's no measurable difference between kids raised in straight families and gay families. In effect, according to social scientists, and increasingly to the consensus of our more gay-tolerant society, kids of gay families are just as well-adjusted as any other kids. But while this is clearly true, the nothing-to-see-here narrative just doesn't seem to fully capture the whole truth of our experience. We weren't just normal kids who happened to have gay parents. We were queer too, or at least queer-ish. Alongside our parents, we struggled with the same fears, the same shame. We decided when to pass and when to come out. We faced the same discrimination our parents did, and we all had to figure out how to deal with it in our own ways. For some, like Chantel, Pam, and Juliet, it's a sense of humor. Do you, in terms of just roles, did you feel at all like, did you feel like you were a mom or, and and I'm not talking about gender at all here, or did you feel more like a dad? And and Chantel, did you feel like Juliet was a mom or more of a dad? Well, I describe myself as the fairy step thing, you know, (laughs) and I, I I call Chantel's dad my ex-husband-in-law. So, (laughs) you know, it's like, you gotta have a sense of humor about these things, dude. You gotta, you gotta take, take that. You know what I mean? It's my, this what we got. So let me control this thing as much as I can. So, you know, we've gone to foreign countries where people have called me many things and we kind of come up with systemista, you know, cause then mm-hmm. it kind of goes, oh, cause there's a cultural thing that goes on that people want to try and identify you. And so, you know, as that's part of my, I, my, part of our lives is figuring out how to maneuver in the world with all of these little nuances that we take for granted sometimes here in the United States. So for others like Jessica and Tom, it was more of a shrug. So when did you kind of finally come out about your parents or was there, was that ever sort of like a, was there a moment for you or was it just kind of, how did you, how did you deal with it as an adult in other words? You know, I've never really felt it necessary to come out um, if it's topical or if, you know, it's part of a conversation that naturally flows. I'll, I'll talk about my mom's. I mean, it's, my dad's been buried what, six times now. And then um, I I say I was raised by lesbians and drag queens. I mean, that kind of gives people, um, I I don't know if they they fall into that spectrum. It makes them a little more comfortable speaking to me. And it's just, by the time I'm I'm really talking to someone, having a conversation about myself, it comes up. But never have I come out like that or felt it necessary to publicize it. I I think it's a, it was unique to us and special in that way. And... certainly a common bond 
But it wasn't like we were, you know, Titanic survivors or something, you know, where we bonded because, you know, it was such a traumatic experience and we survived. You could have a bad childhood in a heterosexual environment or a bad childhood in a homosexual environment. It doesn't matter, you know, it's a childhood. It could be anything. It could go any way. Uh, depends on the players, I guess. And would you call yours a good childhood? Absolutely. Bella Abzug, the outspoken congresswoman from New York from 1970 to 1976 and among the first to openly support gay rights, once said of the women's rights movement, Our struggle today is not to have a female Einstein get appointed as an assistant professor. It is for a woman Schlemiel to get as quickly promoted as a male Schlemiel. The same, I think, should be said for our queer families. What we've been fighting for, whether we realized it or not, is for the equal right of our parents to be free, to be just as mediocre as straight parents are. For kids of gay parents to be free to have good and bad experiences without them being judged on the basis of their parents' sexuality. You know, these waves of people are going to keep coming in the more, you know, it's, it's the thing we all want. We want healthy families. We want families where we love each other, where there's respect, where people can safely grow up and be who they're going to be. And that's going to keep happening. And then pretty soon it's going to be really hard to make the argument that there's some kind of deviant, you know, something, system going on. It's just going to be the world you live in. I agree with that. For me, I've gotten to the point where it's like I am human and so are my parents and everyone deserves the same rights. I don't think about it in terms of having to prove anything to anyone and why should I have to prove anything to anyone and why do I have to behave in a certain way to prove that I'm okay or Mm -hmm. I'm intelligent? Because looking back, I think that a a lot of what was hard was feeling like I had to be well-adjusted and just really kind of not being okay with any of it. Not being okay with the world, certainly, the way it was. The freedom to not always be the shiny success story either. The freedom to just be a family full of people who get it right sometimes and who get it wrong sometimes and it heads south sometimes. And I'm about to quote a song lyric if I'm not careful, but that you do have the the right, the freedom and the ability to just live and, and not have to be the poster child on the other side of things either. And the fact was, I didn't have the greatest childhood. Even before I knew my parents were gay, I was given to brooding and anxiety. My dad, gay or not, was a pretty terrible parent. And my mom, lesbian or not, was an amazing mother. But it was my childhood, my dad, and my mom. I think about my own kids now, how blissfully indifferent my eldest son, Urson, now 14, feels toward the whole issue of homosexuality. He's got lesbian grandmas, a couple of gay aunties in L.A., and, like I did, a gay godfather. And he and his buddies at school formed their own not-at-all secret gang called Gays with Girlfriends. I wish it could have been the way that it was with Urson, When he and I took our trip to Seattle, um, it was during Gay Pride, and he had we were taking the bus, and he said, "Um, I've never seen so many rainbow flags in my life. And then a little later, he said, we were were talking about the, the Gay Pride parade and everything that was going on, and he said, well, he said, Graham, I could be gay. And I just thought it was such a sweet thing. And he said, but um, he said, but I don't have an attraction. I don't have that attraction. And I said, well, Urson, that's sort of what it it means to be gay is that you do have that attraction. And without the attraction, um, it's probably a pretty good indication that you're not gay. But I just thought it was so sweet that he was 
entertaining that oh, that's a possibility. I, I can I could be all right with that. Wish We Were Here is a production of Radio Colorado College, KRCC. Many thanks to our production assistant, Amelia Whitmer. If you want to listen to this episode again or hear other episodes of Wish We Were Here, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or go to krcc.org. For Wish We Were Here, I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. Black.